Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and hosts of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Welcome to another episode of The Nuanced Life. We are excited to share some of our feedback on our last episode on loneliness. We got lots of great messages from all of you across social media. Then in our main segment, we are going to talk about boys and masculinity and toxic masculinity in American culture. And then at the end, we will share something inspiring to leave you with for the week. But we would start with Michaela's message about loneliness. She was surprised that we didn't talk about emotional labor in this discussion. She said that her strongest feelings of loneliness happen when she enters a situation and realizes no one has taken time to care about her as much as she cares about them, which mm-hmm. often manifests as an imbalance in emotional labor. I thought that was so precisely articulated. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I think a lot of us experience and maybe don't put language to the way Michaela has. And here's a specific example she gives. She's talking about dating and being on bad dates with someone who takes more emotionally than she's giving. She says, often I find they talk and talk and talk. And I maintain what I think is a normal human balance of the conversation. When the date is over, they think it was fantastic and we had this great connection. But really, I just listen to them. Been there. yeah i feel that i I mean i feel that and i think that emotional emotional labor for me manifests more as like resentment than loneliness what does that say about my personality (laughs) (laughs) i should say this week that i offloaded some emotional labor and let my husband i'm not planning any birthday parties this um year I put my husband in charge of that. I think this actually this is probably a good precursor for our discussion about masculinity. My husband um, took it on, planned a really great Batman birthday party. I shared the picture on our Instagram channel um, and it was awesome. I didn't feel really stressed about it. I was totally trusting of him, knew he had it under control. Really enjoyed the party. Can't recommend it enough. That's the problem with emotional labor, though. Like, you have to, there has to be some trust and there has to be some willingness to delegate and let it go. I think that's right. And I, I like that you talked about fear of missing out in our discussion of loneliness. 
I was thinking about how I didn't bring up an interview that I heard on Oprah's Super Soul Conversations, so everybody can take a drink because we've mentioned it again. I mean, I'm just but so deep Oprah, in it, and I just love it so much. <laughs> I can't help Oprah it. Was talking with, she was talking with Pema Chodron, who's somebody I've admired for a long time, and she asked Pema if loneliness is just a form of fear. And Pema thought about it for a second and said, yeah, I think so. And I think that that's right. And I think that resentment is another form of fear in a lot of ways. I think this imbalance in emotional labor that Michaela's talking about is ultimately about fear. I'm afraid that you don't care about me as much as I care about you. I'm afraid that you're not interested in me as much as I'm interested in you. Um, when I experience loneliness as people not taking interest in what I care about the most, I think that there is at the root of that a fear that the relationship is not going to be what I wish it to be. Hmm. Or that I am unloved or that the things that are important to me are unlovable to the person that I'm with. And so I do think fear is at the root of all of this. Well, I just had a friend who's told me that her um, therapist said that stress is basically fear. I guess everything at the root of uh, all of our emotions deep down are fear. That's concerning. Well, a, a person I used to work for who taught me lots of good things said to me at one point that everything is fear or love. Those are the only two motivators in life. Mm -hmm. I think when you get down to it, that's true. Oh, that's intense. Here's what I, I that's also am why stress can. I, I, sorry to interrupt you. I think that's also why good stress is still stress because love can still be intense like that. Right. So even when you're motivated towards something because it's amazing, you're just taking the love side of it instead of the fear side of it or, mm -hmm. or it's love plus fear that you'll lose it if you don't execute well um right now i'm feeling a lot of fear and sadness about the um the last of my babies not being a baby anymore can we talk about that we can um i don't know how many of y'all have gone through this but my this is my third son felix he just potty trained he's about to get in a big boy bed he started full-time preschool today and y'all, it's just making me so sad to see an end to the baby stage, even though I know I'm looking back on it with rose-colored glasses. That whole thing about the days are long, but the years are short, that is not a joke. So what, what fear are you feeling around it? That I messed it up, that I didn't enjoy it enough when, I, when they were little, that I didn't spend enough time with them, that I've already screwed them up, even though they're only three, six, and eight. <laughs> a lot of, just a lot of, like, reg it, it manifests itself as regret, I think, and just that, um, you know, I, I swim in mom guilt in a way that you don't. Um, I wish I could I learned that from you. Um, yeah, it's just I, I fear that I, that I messed it up, that I didn't spend the time that I could and then I missed out. It's it's all fear of missing out with me. It all it's all roads lead to fear of missing out with Sarah. That's interesting. I think that I just accept that I've messed it up. Probably that I missed things that I don't remember things as clearly as I wish that I had. I don't really do a lot of regret in my life. I was thinking about that over the weekend for some reason about regret specifically, and I realized there might be one or two things that I just truly regret. But for the most part, I can draw. Even the things that are just like miserable to remember and that I hate that I went through, I can still draw such a line to that part of my life and who I am today or what I learned from it. I can just see that it existed to teach me something, so I don't really regret it. With with my kids, gosh, I just think they're so much more fun with every new stage. 
that I don't look back a whole lot. And I did not love being pregnant. I did not love breastfeeding. I did not love not sleeping. So I, you know, I just didn't enjoy it as much as I wish that I had because it, it wasn't really for me. That reminds me of the quote from Stephen Colbert. I was just showing this, the GQ interview he did when he started The Late Show to my grandmother. And he has that amazing quote of, I love the thing I wish most had not happened. Did you ever read that interview? Mm-mm. Oh, it's amazing. It's a, because, you know, he experienced great tragedy as a young child. His brothers and his father were killed in a plane crash. And he just talks about suffering and the role of suffering and what you learn from things that happen to you. And he like tears up at the interview and he's like, you know, it's because I love the thing I wish most had not happened. And it's just so it's so good. Um, I think that I look back on the baby stage with rose colored glasses because I'm a control freak. And so they're. Even though any illusion of control, even with newborns, is just that an illusion. There is something about like I told somebody one time the the brutal um, truth of parenting is as the stakes get higher, you have less control. Like you can't really make a newborn sleep, but the stakes are sort of low. So like, you know, the stakes are like breastfeeding or not breastfeeding or burping or sleeping or like there's just there's this they feel very high especially with your first kid but like as you as they get older and there's like bullying and teenage years and school and all that's so like the stakes get so much higher as you get just less and less sort of input into their lives because they're out and they're with peers and they're at school all day man i just want to you know hold them tight and control everything that ever happens to them <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing I would like to alleviate for us in parenting. I think there's this idea that like our experience, particularly of motherhood, maybe it's this way for dads too, directly affects our children. I enjoyed Ellen as a baby so much more than Jane because she was my second and I knew what I was doing and it all just, I could enjoy it more because I wasn't learning something every moment. But that doesn't mean I loved Ellen more than Jane. And the two of them don't know that. It doesn't matter. And when they're older and they do know it, it won't matter to them. And I think there's all this pressure around, I simultaneously have to be a fantastic mom. I have to be pulling everything off. I have to be constantly kind of upping the joy that I create for these kids. And and at the same time, I must be flourishing myself in the midst of all of it. It's Mm. too much. It's just too much. And I think that's part of why I just decided at some point to turn all this mom guilt off in my brain because I think it's paralyzing. There are days when I really struggle with parenting and there are days when it's the most wonderful thing I've ever done. And on balance, I know that it will end up being this wonderful, beautiful part of my life. But I just can't stress about what my experience is of it while I'm trying to care about their experiences, too. I've just so fully internalized the Jackie Kennedy, if you bungle raising your kids, not much else matters. Also, because I'm a huge Jackie Kennedy fan. We'll be talking about that tonight on the Political Couples special bonus episode of Pansy Politics. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I just I feel so much pressure. And it's really all self-imposed. Like, I don't feel pressure to do like I don't cook. I don't care. Like, I don't have like sort of the traditional gendered parenting roles like in my head, I don't feel the pressure about that kind of thing. I just feel the pressure to like do a good job. Like I brought them here. It's like I created these people. I brought them here. They didn't have a choice in the matter. And I feel so much sort of pressure to like do it right and do right by them and um, not screw it up. I really do. I agree. 
except that we we will screw it up in some way. Mm, I hate that. And the bigger thing is, I this is how I get through a lot of guilt in my life. I don't want Jane and Ellen to be sitting here having a conversation like this. When they have their own kids, I don't want them to think, oh my God, I'm so stressed all the time. I'm so worried about mm. screwing my kids up. I'm so worried about this or that. And I feel like the only way that I can teach them to have a life free of all of this, I don't want them grinding their teeth, Sarah. So Word. I have to try to forgive myself, right? And I have to give myself the grace of I'm just doing the best I can as a mom all the time. And I hope that I hope that enough of that comes from me just energetically that they'll be able to dial the anxiety down more too. Um, maybe that we should take that as the Bruxism beat moment. Um, the the ones live podcast within a podcast Bruxism beat. So did you get a mouth guard? I did. Yes. Do you think it's helped? I think it has helped a lot. Now I it wakes me up sometimes. See, that's what I'm not. I'm not here for it. Mm-mm. I feel my teeth hitting it. You know, but mm-hmm. I definitely am waking up with fewer headaches than I had before I got it. So I I do think it's helpful. See, I think that it helped me for a while, but then I felt like it was like either because I ground it down or something, it was like forcing my jaw out of alignment. And like, I do not have the, I have Bruxism beat victory. We need some sort of celebrate celebratory audio right here. Like I do not have the tension running down the side of my face that I had for like a solid most of January. Um, yeah. It's, it's really gone away. Um, I don't feel that tension right in my jaws. Now, I had them dry needled, which was an incredibly intense experience. I've been doing all the things, lavender diffused at night, legs up the wall, journaling, meditation. I just threw, I just threw everything at it. Um, but it does seem to be really helpful. I have learned, I don't know why I can't internalize this message that drinking wine late at night really disrupts my sleep. So that uh, jacked me up the other night. But other than that, I think I've really, I've, I've come a long way. I'm feeling pretty good about my bruxism journey. My jaw feels a lot better too. I think the mouth guard has helped. And then I have this arm inter- injury. So I've been seeing my massage therapist more lately as I'm trying to work through this injury. And she has done some internal mouth massage. Have you ever had that done? Yes, or- she did okay. that when she dry needled me. It's amazing. It is amazing. It feels so weird. And it is not at all like a peaceful spa kind of moment. No. But it makes an enormous difference. Huge. You have work on your cheeks and your soft and hard palates. I mean, it's a big deal. Well, she and she touched these muscles back in the like sort of where my teeth, like my jaws connect. And I just realized like that's where the actual tension and soreness was. It wasn't in the in my masseter muscles like on the outside of my face. Like it really was the like. And I can do it every once in a while when I feel them sort of tensing up. I can press on them inside my own mouth back where my teeth meet, and it helps so much. It was those I think that were really causing the problems, not the X one. Nothing. Ex- Are you laughing at the visual of me talking about sticking my fingers in my mouth? It helps though. Listen, just also the level of detail here. We're really bringing it. Listen. Bruxism is an issue. It is an epidemic. We are doing a public service right now. I just feel strongly about that. (laughs) Okay. Speaking of public service, um, so next up, we are going to talk about masculinity in America. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So as we just discussed, I put a lot of pressure on myself as a mother. I'm also the mother of three boys. So let me tell you, I didn't spend any time thinking about this. Michael Ian Black, the comedian, tweeted after the shooting deaths in Parkland, Florida, that as much as guns are a problem, a a bigger problem is that boys are broken in the United States. And he said that until we fix the problems with boys in the United States, we have to solve the gun problem. But he went on to talk about how we don't know how to raise men in our country anymore. And men are really suffering from a lack of understanding of what it means to be a man. And I think this is a fascinating and important discussion. I struggle a little bit when I was preparing to have it. I struggled a little bit with it because we are two women. So I talked to my husband a lot about it. There is a lot to unpack around what it means to be a man in America in 2018. So I have obviously thought so, so much about masculinity because, um, you know, I have three little boys. Here's a fun story. They told me Griffin was a girl twice in two different ultrasounds, um, and then I went to Mexico for a baby moon, and the Mex- I got sick, and the Mexican ultrasound tech told me that Griffin was a boy. I'm an only girl. Um, I really enjoy the company of women primarily, and so I was, um, this is not an overstatement, devastated. I was terrified to raise boys. I didn't know what that meant. Um, I was just, oh, I was so scared. Griffin is the wanna, oldest of Sarah's three boys. If you Griffin is the, the old order. Griffin is my oldest son. Yes. So um, then I des- I still desperately wanted a girl. Spoiler alert! Didn't get the girl. Had the two other boys. So gender has just, especially when I was like actively thinking about having more babies and um, like still in that in that space where babies were. An option, you know, like I've moved on. I don't want to have any more babies, but like for a solid, you know, Griffin is about to turn nine. So for almost a decade, like that was a thing in my life. And I, and it was always a part of me. Um, I desperately wanted a girl. I was heartbroken. I would cry. I would think about what, what does that really mean to want a girl? Um, are there experiences I think I'm going to miss? Um, what am I so scared about with raising boys? Um, and there it, to say to say there is a lot to unpack is yeah it's it's so true for me you know i've talked about on this podcast how instrumental my relationship is with my husband who i've been with since i was 19 years old and who is one of four boys and a baby girl so my mother-in-law kept at it I me mean, not so much um and seeing masculinity through his eyes and seeing how 
like unaffected he is by, or maybe not unaffected, but uninvested in the gender of our children. Like he just, he legitimately did not care. And when I would say, well, what about this? And I won't get to experience that. And he's like, you might not anyway. You have no idea what the lives of our children are going to be like. You say, oh, you'll be so sad. You'll never get to see your daughter get married. Well, she might not have gotten married anyway. <laughs> like, just he helped me in big, huge ways to unpack that. And I think as I raise boys, I mean, so much of it is what they see their father, how they see their father's experience masculinity. And in a, a twist of fate and a blessing I do not deserve, my husband and my amazing father-in-law and mother-in-law, like they set my husband and his brothers up for such a positive experience of masculinity. Like my father-in-law is a poet, like in a razor, got a doctorate in English. He ran a quilting website. Like there's just a lot of toxic masculinity in their house. And, you know, I see that with my husband and my boys. Like they just, they don't, they don't experience as experience it as a limitation. And we try very hard to push back against any limiting messages they get from people that are not us, which they're definitely out there. Um, This weekend at the birthday party Nicholas planned and executed, my friend came with her baby who's five months old. And he was like, oh, let me hold that little nugget. And he was like holding her baby. And my grandmother told me later, she was like, that just really, I couldn't believe that. I couldn't believe that he, it was so sweet that he would want to hold somebody else's baby and love that baby. It was just so precious. It was like so out of anything that my grandmother saw her own father or her own husband do. And I'm just so thankful for that. I think that you're right. I mean, we are women and I I live in a house full of males, but um, I think so much of our boys comes down to how they see their father's experience, masculinity. And um, that's, I think, where a lot of Adult men need to do some self-examination and to push back against so many of those cultural messages that we send to men and to boys. I think that we need to define what we're talking about when we talk about masculinity because there is a sense among some men right now that all masculinity, especially for straight white men, is toxic. And that is not what I believe. I watched on your recommendation and the recommendation of some listeners part of the documentary, The Mask We Live In, uh, The Mask You Live In, last night. And that helped me kind of put my finger on it when they talked about how modern conceptions of masculinity tend to be nothing more than a rejection of everything that is feminine. Mm -hmm. And I think when you are talking about masculinity as a rejection of all that is feminine, that is the problem. But it's not that masculinity in and of itself is bad. When I think about Chad, so I met Chad, I instantly fell very hard for Chad just right away. And if I put language to why that is, the parts that I can put language to, I would use a lot of really traditionally masculine words. Chad feels protective to me. He has these literally broad shoulders. And the night that I met him, we were in a sports bar watching basketball games with friends. And he stood behind me the whole night. And there was just something about his presence that felt very secure. So when I think about all of the things that just 
caused me to instantly connect with him. I mean, they are really traditionally masculine ideas. I don't think those things are toxic or bad at all. It is just the inability then to allow men the space to have feminine characteristics that leads us astray, I think. I think you're right. And, you know, there's a part of me that feels like I use the same skills thinking about masculinity that I've used for decades thinking about femininity and the role of it in my own life. And I think it it reminds me of once I heard a um, very famous obstetrician talking about rethinking birth. And he said, we're not going to do anything unless we know why we're doing it. And I think there is so much of that we need to do with both masculinity and femininity. Oh, well, girls like this. But why? Why do we think girls like this? Oh, boys do this. Why? Can you tell me why? Because if you can't tell me why, then I- I'm I'm not going to automatically accept it just because. I mean, I'm a questioner. That's my four t- Gretchen Rubin four tendency profile. Like, so there's a part of me that that it's just very natural for me to push back against these expectations and to say, I'm a woman and I don't enjoy getting pedicures. I'm not going to get a pedicure. Like, it's dumb. And if a man wants to get a pedicure, great. Like, there's just these these traditional masculine and feminine things that we fall into that it's the water we swim in without looking around and saying that oh wait what why why do we do it that way why why do we think that's the best way is there another way to do this is this a gravity problem or is this just a problem of our own making and i think gender is a huge huge space where so much of that happens um we had a listener email us and say i think she was tweeting us about growing her son's hair out and people would say oh well what if what if somebody thinks he's a girl? Yes. What if they do? I mean, PSA, someone assuming your child is a different gender than what they are does not actually change their gender. So I just want everyone to like, what if they, what, what happens? What's so wrong about someone mistaking the gender of an infant? Can someone help me understand the danger of that scenario? Yeah, I think that this all gets to the kind of binary thinking that we're constantly talking about in our discussions, that you can be only boy or girl instead of recognizing that we're all a little bit of both, and Mm. that the world needs both kinds of energy, and that those energies don't always correspond to our biological sex, and that's fine too. But we have all this fear, I mean, to hearken back to our first block, we have all this fear around gender for some reason. And I don't know where that comes from, but I think that's where we have done an incredible disservice to boys because we've told them that that fear has to convert to you being the aggressor all the time. Mm -hmm. We had a Pantsuit Politics listener send us a message, and I this is the kind of thing that reminds me how generous people are with sharing their thoughts with us. He wrote to us because he had had a brief interest in the alt-right. And he sent us some links to information about people who are helping folks in the alt-right come out of that. And he asked us why we thought the alt-right was attractive to young men. And, and I sat on that message for a while because I just thought, I don't know. I don't know. And, and so I went back to him and said, what do you think? And he wrote this very powerful message about how what the culture is teaching right now to young men is that White men, straight white men are at the root of every problem that has ever existed in any society. 
and that being a straight white man is uninteresting and pathetic. Hmm. And he said that if you view your life options as being pathetic or dangerous, you are going to gravitate most likely as a man toward dangerous. And then he said, you know, he came to a place of recognizing how destructive that is, not just for everyone else, but for himself too. But when he framed it that way, I can be pathetic or dangerous. That is a version of a message that we send boys from the get-go in life, Mm -hmm. right? You can be the bully or the bullied. You don't want to be a sissy. You don't want to be weak. You have to be powerful in every way. And I think that's why it takes a lot of different forms in men. But no wonder they feel like they have to dominate the conversation. No wonder hierarchy is so important to men. I mean, that's that's really destructive. And we all, women and men, participate in sending those messages. So as research for this show, I decided to watch The New Queer Eye on Netflix because so many of our listeners have emailed in and been like, y'all need to watch The New Queer Eye. So I watched the first episode, and there's this really great moment where the guy they're helping asks one of the um, guys, he says he's been married for 15 years, or he's been together for 13 and married for five. And he goes, then the guy says, are you the wife or the husband? And the two gay guys go, mmm. And one in the back goes, Hmm, let's unpack that. And they're like, that's a little bit sexist. And he's like, I don't, I didn't know. And they're like, we know. They're, it was like such a good example of how to have these conversations, first of all. And they're like, it's okay. You don't need to know. And the guy in the back says, you know, we all have this energy. We all have a little bit of moon, a little bit of feminine energy, and a little bit of sun, a little bit of masculine energy. And it's all mixed around inside of us. And we just need to find spaces for that. And what I feel, here's what I feel like people tell me as the mother of a boy. The undercurrent when my dad or my stepdad gets so upset that I am painting their nails or letting them grow their hair or, um, you know, making space for other expressions of themselves is they'll get the message that you don't accept their masculine sides, right? That there's all this danger of tamping down or not, or more probably appropriately, not building up their masculinity. And the danger, as they have expressly said to me before, is either bullying, that they'll get picked on at school, um, that kids are mean, or that, I mean, that's primary, that it, right? That you are going to not show them how to be a man, and so other people will attack them. When what I am saying is almost, almost the opposite. Like, I'm not trying to build up in them anything. I'm trying to allow space for whoever they are. I want to allow space and I want them to feel accepted for whoever they are because the worst, my nightmare as a parent is that my boys think I don't love them exactly as they are. I mean, that's like my worst nightmare. That's why we go to a a church that is completely and totally accepting of LGBT because I can't fathom a moment in which my boys didn't feel like I loved them and accepted them for exactly who they are. And we talk a lot about that people can be cruel and that the culture might not always accept them exactly as they are. And as, But to me, the nightmare is not somebody else is mean to them. The nightmare is I'm not a safe space for them to go if someone is mean to them because I can't control those other people. 
I cannot control them. I could turn them into the most masculine, hard, strong, whatever words you want to use. And they're still going to experience moments of brokenness. I cannot prevent a life in which they don't feel lonely or broken or sad. And so for me as a mother of boys, what's important is that they feel a safe space, that they feel accepted even when they're sad, even when they're lonely, even when they're angry. Not that I protect them from it, not that I teach them to, you know, power through or to make it where the the culture is accepted to them or they're accepted by the culture. Like, I just, I can't control any of that. All I can control is how they feel about me. You know, I was reading about the Parkland um, shooter and, you know, all evidence points that this kid was very troubled for a very long time. But his mother, I didn't realize his mother had passed away in November And I, you know, if I'm being honest, it's just, it makes me so sad. I know we're supposed to feel anger and he's supposed to be evil and we're supposed to just, you know, throw him away. But it just makes me sad. It makes me sad to think that he was so broken and he had no um, safe place to go anymore. It just, it breaks my heart. Well, that's the whole point of teaching your boys that whatever they are is okay. Because it not only allows them to be okay, it allows them to view other people as okay. Mm-hmm. It allows all of us to stop saying that we throw anyone away. Yep. I feel the same way about this kid. Look, nobody goes into a school and starts firing at children without being incredibly desperate and lonely and sad. We can both hold him accountable for his actions and feel a sense of compassion about where he was coming from. And that's what we aren't teaching boys right now. Mm-hmm. We are telling girls you can be both. We are telling girls now. And it's look, we're not there. But we have come so far in telling girls you can be a cheerleader and a research scientist. You can get your pedicure and be awesome at calculus, right? You are a leader uh, and you don't have to sacrifice any of your femininity to be that anymore. We're, We're telling women, I mean, part of the stress of being a woman today is like, you can have it all. You can be a mom and a CEO. Look at everybody who's doing that. And we're not sending that message to boys. I don't think we're giving boys as a whole the kind of ands that we're giving to girls. And as a result, all of our social progress is being met with incredible backlash because I think that what men hear is less we just want to be included and more we want to take everything from you. Now it's our turn because they are stuck in that scarcity and hierarchical mindset. You know, I, I shared with Sarah before we started recording today, I have never once ever seen a white man not get a job because he is a white man. But that fear is pervasive among white men, right? And I think that what what we aren't saying well and what they aren't hearing is it's not that I don't ever want to hire a white man again. It's that I want eyes to see the qualifications of non-white men as candidates. I want to be open to a broader 
spectrum of people and talents and ways of doing things, but that doesn't exclude you. It just means that we all come along together. And the fear that white men feel about that seems so irrational to those of us who aren't straight white men because we don't see any evidence of that fear coming to fruition in the world. However, I think that what we're afraid of is always worse than the reality of the thing itself. So I understand I can have compassion for this fear that is germinating, especially among young white men. And I can have compassion for them looking out for opportunities to become more dangerous in a world that they perceive as telling them that they're going to be pathetic. That's really hard and a lot for me to think about, but I'm trying to be there because we're just not getting anywhere if we keep telling men that that they don't have any options. I mean, I totally agree. I think that several years ago, back in 2015, I wrote a piece for the Huffington Post called Why I'm Raising My Sons Like Daughters. Oh, you can just imagine the comments. It was it was pretty heated. Um, I wrote it because Gloria Steinem had posted a Christmas list and she said, I'm glad we begun to raise our daughters more like our sons, but it will never work until we raise our sons more like our daughters. And, you know, it's exactly what you said. Like anything girly is bad and they get that. They start to say that and they internalize it really soon. Um, the other damaging effect of that is that they there's no, there's increasingly less cross-gender play because girls don't like, oh, well, she likes, she won't like the same things as me. And it's like they get this message that they can't play with girls, which I really, really hate. Um, and I also talked about in the article this interview with Anne-Marie Slaughter, who wrote the the infamous Women Can't Have It All article in The Atlantic and has gone on to dedicate herself to sort of gender equality work. And she said, um, I have two sons, and I looked at my sons, and I thought, you know, if I had a daughter, we'd be raising her 100% differently than the way my mother raised, was raised, and even differently than I was raised, although my father was very progressive, and he raised me to have a career. But if I looked at my sons, I thought, I'm raising my sons pretty much exactly the way my father was raised. I mean, we're raising them to have more active roles as fathers. My father never changed a diaper. Certainly, my ch- husband changed plenty, and I expect my sons to. But we're still saying to men, your worth in society is a function of your breadwinning. It's a function of how much money you can make and how high you can rise in your career. And that's a very limited set of choices. And I I think that when we did that to little girls, when we said, you can be strong, you can do all these things. And we put out examples, right? We said, look at Mia Hamm, um, look at Oprah, look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg, look at Hillary Clinton. We have not done a wonderful job of giving boys those same examples. That's why I love Stephen Colbert. I love men who will come and who will express that um, that emotionalism and that empathy and um, the struggling with things in life. I think President Obama was a really good example of this. Um, and what I what I realized, you know, with my own kids is that's why I'm so lucky because my husband is a good example of that. And so they have that example just right in their own home. But I think we need to give all boys and you know an example of a different way to be masculine. Now, unfortunately, I think the reason that you get this cultural moment of, you know, white straight men are trash is because for better or for worse, that sort of cultural mascot mascot for white straight men right now is Donald Trump, and he ain't a great mascot. So I think that that is where you, you feel that sort of frustration that, um, this that 
there's so many sort of totems of white straight masculinity that are terrible, like Harvey Weinstein, um, like Larry Nasser, like just all these these terrible examples. And but I want my little boys to have something to look to to say there is there is value in my perspective. There is value in me as a um, white boy, because, I, you know, you see this in minority populations that when you say, oh, we're all colorblind, we're all the same. That's really harmful. People need to have an identity. People need to feel like they have something to offer because of their unique perspective. And boys do, too. And the only way we've offered them, the only the only route we've offered them to contribute is through taking, through winning, through strength. We don't offer them the array of options that they deserve. Yeah, I think the recognition of privilege is just step one, whether you're talking about race or gender. Mm. Because when you've been the default, once you recognize your privilege, it can take you to a really dark place of feeling like you don't have an identity because all your identity has meant to you, all that descriptor has meant is being dominant. So when the world is saying, we don't want you to be dominant anymore, that does create kind of a vacuum. I remember when I first kind of confronted this in college and a professor was talking with me about what it means to be white. And my answer was, it doesn't mean anything to me to be white. And then I started learning that that's privilege. The next step, though, is creating an identity around that that's positive and that Mm -hmm. you can see as one of many valid identities. Right. So. So being white doesn't define a whole lot about my experience, but being from Kentucky does. Being from a rural area does. Being born on a farm does. You know, and so when I think about men, being a woman does mean something to me. And I understand that it needs to mean something to be a man. I just think that we can make that mean something really positive instead of what we've made it mean. And credit where due. The the guys that are in the age bracket of our husbands have progressed this issue incredibly far. Mm-hmm. You know, Chad, as as much as he has some very, I think, positive, traditionally masculine attributes, he's a wonderful father and and will have very open emotional conversations with me from time to time. Think about the fact that our two husbands not only support this podcast, but like do tons of work to help make it happen behind the scenes. There's so many things in in our marriages that have flipped gender roles around that show what what a positive, healthy male identity can look like. And I think there are lots of guys uh, like Chad and Nicholas out there trying to do this. And and we need to encourage and support that instead of walking around talking about all of them as trash, because that's that's just not true. Yeah. I told Beth earlier that I wish we could sort of change the analogy because I feel like what people are envisioning when we say we want a seat at the table is that there's this table. There are only like eight seats for most of human history, seven that were filled with white straight guys. And so now we're just like jerking the seats out from under them, pushing them aside and filling the seats with more diverse candidates. And I just wish that is not I, I wish we could have a different metaphor, a different vision in which. Maybe there was other tables all along and we're all sitting at each other's tables. Like instead of there just being one table and we're fighting over the chairs, we can say, hey, we've been having this conversation over here as women about 
the roles that caregiving, the, the perspective that caregiving provides, would you like to come sit at our table? We would love to have you at our table. Like we would, we would love to have you a part of this conversation. I would love for my boys to have paternity leave and to take off months and care for their newborn children. Like nothing would make me happier. You know, I would love for them to have that experience. I think of it like, have you been to a wedding where they have like the head table and then everybody else is at these round tables all over the reception hall? It's like, yeah, like come away from the head table and like join the party because there's all this stuff happening around here. You don't need to, to segregate yourself off for the illusion and sometimes the reality of running everything. Just come to the party. Be part of the party with everyone else. And also just let that like let it go. Let we need to I don't think we need to let our identities go. But the idea that the entirety of a human being's experience can be signed up with their race and their gender is so crazy. Like I get upset so often by the limitations of being a woman and like Oh, well, women don't like being in charge and women. No, I do like being. Thank you. I do like being in charge very much so. And, you know, there's just there's so much of it with particularly with men that you just want to say, like, I know that that's not all there is to you. I know that there is so much more to you and you have so much more to give beyond a perspective of strength or a perspective of ambition or these like very limited viewpoints like we all have so much more to give and to connect with each other about that and i feel like the queer the new queer is really capturing that very well i'm just going to be honest yeah you can be more than successful and you'll be so much happier when you're more than successful you know Mm -hmm. i think that's a message that a lot of men need go back to your point about cross gender play we also all i think to solve some of these problems have to commit to stop sexualizing everything Yes. Because the only cross-gender play discussions that I see happening for Jane, who is a first grader, involve boyfriends and girlfriends. They talk about this constantly. The reality is, I think Jane's best friend at school is a boy. Like, the person that she comes home talking about really interesting discussions with, who chooses the same kinds of books that she likes in the library, and who is in all of her reading groups and who who is interested in science experiments and origami, like the things that she loves, there is a boy in her class who loves those things. She talks about him less and less all the time because I think she doesn't want us to feel like he's her boyfriend. And she mm. said things to me that indicate that. And I just want to be like, no, just be his friend. That's amazing. I'm so happy that you have this friendship. But I understand how even at seven, they would have all these messages that that's something else. And, like, why do we do that to our seven-year-olds? I don't know why we do that to ourselves in our 30s, 40s, and 50s, but especially to really young children, just making them talk about each other, like, are you guys going to get married? I've seen adults do that. Like, knock it off, everyone, please. Okay, but let's get real. So much of this is about us, right? Yes. My desire to have a girl was about me. And it's so hard to have conversations about gender as parents because it is wrapped up in our own choices and our own decisions. Like I've thought a lot about as as somebody who did stay home for several years that I don't think I would ever want my boys to have a stay-at-home wife or slash mother because I saw the pressure it put on my husband. But, like, that's a hard thing to think about 
through the perspective of my own choices, right? Like it's just, it's like birth. We talk about birth. Like you can't have a conversation without anybody starting to defend their own choices. Like there's, uh, there's just a part of us, I think, that we need to let go of our defensiveness about our own choices about gender when we talk about our kids. Like you might live in a very traditional gendered relationship. That's okay. It's okay if your child wants to reject that and figure out something different for themselves. It's not a judgment on your choice. But that's such a hard, it's such an easy thing to say and a hard thing to do. Well, and I think a lot of it centers around a version of life that is really romanticized. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, when they are invested in their pregnancy resulting in one gender or another of child, are thinking about the wedding and being the mother of the bride or the mother of the mm-hmm. groom, right? And they are thinking about, will they give me grandchildren? And it's, you know, look, Jane's best life might involved might involve three husbands and a wife. You know what I mean? I don't know what Jane's best life is going to look like. Mm-hmm. And for me to frame her up for a path that is go to school, go to college, right? Go to college, get married. Sometime after you're married to a successful, wealthy man, right? Mm-hmm. Have children and a dog and an SUV. Like, the, that might not be the best version of her life. And I can't know that. And she doesn't know that now either. And so that's why I feel like we're all, we're constantly going to be messing our children up <laughs> because we don't know what their best life is going to be. But I think we are assured to mess them up if we, prematurely decide that their best life is some fictional version of what we think every best life should look like. Yeah, it was. It was a very, listen, I talked to my therapist a lot about this. It was a, it was very much wrapped up in the relationship I wanted as an adult with my child and feeling like there was an intimacy that would be closed off to me if I had boys as adult children. Um, even though that's not really what I see around me, like with my uncles and my grandmother or my dad and his mother. Um, So I don't know really where I got that from, but that's, you know, that's what I decided. I decided like I wouldn't be able to be as, as much involved in their life and not, we won't even get into the, like the messed up cultural messages about daughter-in-laws and mother-in-laws. Cause that's probably a whole podcast by itself. But like, I just had, I mean, people would say, people would and still say to me, Oh, well, he's yours until he takes a wife. You know, he doesn't belong to you. Not like a girl you get to keep forever. Like strangers in the grocery store will say that to me. I'm not even kidding. Our view of marriage is so messed up. <laughs> That's all there is to say about it, right? Like the, the, the view that we have about what it means to be a family, what it means to be in relationship with someone else, what partnerships look like. It's just all really messed up and it leads us to messing up our kids all the time. And I want to be really clear again, I don't mean that everything has to be gender neutral. I don't mean that I will only, you know, that I'm going to forbid Jane and Ellen from playing with dolls. You know, they, they're they welcome to play with dolls. I'm just saying they're also welcome to play with Legos. And P.S. Dolls are saying. a lie. <laughs> I said P.S. Dolls are a lie. It's a just long con telling you dolls are like having a baby. Dolls are nothing like having a baby. Yeah, dolls are nothing like having a baby, but they're welcome to play with them. I mean, it's just, I don't want to take anything away. I just want to add and be comfortable and allow 
all of our children, girls and boys, the opportunity to find themselves and, and to find themselves without having to look to something that makes them wield power over other people. And that's what I get back to when I think about Michael Ian Black's tweet and the gun debate, that the only option we're giving boys is to find more and more extreme ways to wield power over other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and because I can, I can feel people or a certain subset of the population who, let's be honest, probably doesn't listen to this podcast, rolling their eyes at the, like, finding yourself. Because I think there is a, per, a percentage of the population who thinks that's gobbledygook and you fulfill your roles and that's what you do. And... When I hear that in people, I always think of um, there's an amazing invisibilia. I think it was the first episode of the second season. And this man was raised in a very traditionally masculine way. Men protect, men control, men have strength, men fix things. And he was involved in a car wreck in which um, he, a little girl died, basically. And he ended up suing the family for emotional trauma because it, it, it he was in this moment in which it caused this little girl's death and he could not get past that he couldn't fix it that he couldn't control it that he was a man that wasn't supposed to harm that he would like it just totally rocked his world because he'd been taught you uh, there are like because i feel like that's sort of the old school way right there are these roles available to you pick which pick the one stick with it and I just want to say, like, how's that working, everybody? Like, is that working out great? Is it working out great by telling these teenagers that, like, you have two paths available to you? If neither make you happy, too bad, suck it up. Like, you know, within a massive suicide rate, an even higher suicide rate against among LGBT youth, like, it's not working. I understand the appeal of that worldview. I do. When things are simpler and everybody just knew their roles and followed the roles. But people were not happy like that. They did terrible, awful things and lied to each other. Not that the people don't still don't do that. But and I think what you see with boys is them saying, like, I got you got to give me another option because this one doesn't work and I'm just going to burn it all down. I'm so miserable. Um, and I'm going to take you all with me. And, and that's true for grown men, too. This idea yep. that you are either a hero or a villain. In the mm-hmm. wake of this most recent mass shooting, I have seen some very well-intended people posting, lots of people posting, about how we ought to give veterans jobs being basically bodyguards at our schools. Mm. And I don't know why this upsets me so much, but I get kind of emotional every time I read one of those posts thinking about how many veterans kill themselves every day Mm -hmm. and how we are sending so many people, men and women overseas to places that we can't find on a map that will never be able to articulate as civilians, what the mission is. Sometimes I think they're not even sure what the mission is when they're there. We're exposing them to all of these horrible things, bringing them back into the United States without any good support for coming out of that experience and coming back to a civilian life meaningfully. And then with good intentions, we talk about them as though their role in life ought to be to pick up another weapon and stand guard at our schools. And it Mm. it tears me up to see that and to think about the mental trauma that those people are enduring 
because they've already made their sacrifice for our country and how much it would reactivate that trauma to be in that position at our schools. And that so many men feel compelled to take to social media to say, yep, sign me up. I'll do that. I'll be the hero. Or we've had listeners write to us saying, you know, I keep a gun because I want to protect the people around me. Thank you. But I don't want you to have to do that. I don't want you to have to choose to be a hero or a villain and either way decide that you need to be locked and loaded at all times. That to me is a sign of brokenness. We're failing you if you feel that way. I think so. Much of this is because we are so value-driven based on roles. We've just decided that the roles encompass our value. And I'm really guilty of this. I had a very good friend who um, helped me and talked to me about this when I lost a pregnancy um, before I had my last son, Felix. And he was just saying, like, the more your identity overlaps with your role, the more dangerous that is because something that can can happen that will affect your role and then you start to worry about your worth as a person and that's what happened to me when I lost a pregnancy because my role as a mother had become such a huge part of my identity that when I lost that pregnancy it was like well you screwed up the one thing you're supposed to do like you're like you're worthless you know like it was such a I really got that and I think that that's what we do to men we have this there's this overlap with the sort of the the masculine roles we've decided are important and you know we just we don't allow any identity maybe that's what it is i don't think there's a lot of room for identity with men outside of the role of being a man and i think the solution is let's talk about that because there are so many parallels for women i struggle with being mm-hmm. super role driven and it mm-hmm. is it very much inhibits my relationships so let's discuss you know, and I think that's the message that we send to boys. You don't discuss that. It's not important enough to discuss relationships. If mm-hmm. the work of tending relationships continues to be women's work, we're going to continue to have a more broken society. Yep. And that's, that's the, I think, the big wrap up, right? That the work of tending to each other has to be all of our work. And mm-hmm. it should have masculine and feminine attributes, but it's all of our work. And to just let there be value in an identity outside of gender, outside of race, outside of, you know, not to not just to go back to this, but the central theme of Oprah's Super Soul conversation is our worth is because we were children of God and we were recreated. And that's it. That's that's the that's the entirety of it. Um in my article about how I'm raising my sons like daughters, Gloria Stunham had this great quote where she says, I hope that we will one day change society to fit the unique individual, not the unique individual to fit society. But we are all in this place and we're all trying to find our own solutions and we need to support each other in those solutions. And that's what I hope the broken boys of our nation and world feel is support and love for who they are in their identity as children of God, not as some you know, ridiculous, twisted version of toxic masculinity. I think that's a great place to end on. And Sarah, I know you wanted to share some music from one of your male friends to yes. close us out today. Actually, this is this is perfect. These are this is um, my beloved friend Mike. Mike and Smith and I are very good friends. We're good friends from college. They're my probably two of my closest male friends, and they've taught me so so much about masculinity and um, what it's like to be a good 
strong, loving man. I just I could not I could not love these two anymore. And Mike is a musician, and he just recorded a children's album called "It's the Johnny Shortcake Showcase." I think is the name of the album. We'll put the link in the show notes. It's so good if you like kids' music. But he has a really great song called "Collaboration Station." that I thought was really lovely and really about what we do here on The Nuance Life and Pansy Politics. So we're going to share that song with you today. And until next week, keep it nuanced, y'all.
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.